Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. Where in the Bible would you go to learn about the hope of Jesus Christ? Most of us would say the Gospels, since that depicts his life, his love, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. If we want a deeper understanding of how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, we'd study the book of Hebrews. To see how Jesus is now, to see him in all of his glory, and to see what he's going to do in the future, we simply need to open the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ to see that aspect of Jesus. At a time when the world is turning away from Jesus, it's more important than ever that we take a closer look at who he is and what his plans are and what he's going to do. And that's what we are doing here on this radio program as we have begun a series in the book of Revelation. It is this book that we see the hope of Jesus now and forever. I'm Debbie Blank, encouraging you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1 so we can take a closer look today at who Jesus is. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. When you hear the title of the book of Revelation, you probably think of it in terms of a book that reveals important and mysterious end times events. And of course, you would be right. But the full title in many Bibles does read, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So not only can we expect amazing revelations of future end times events, we are also given an amazing revelation of the person of Jesus Christ himself, in a new way we have not witnessed up until this final book of the Bible. It begins in chapter 1, where John's first reaction to seeing Jesus, now in all his heavenly glory, is to fall to his knees as a dead man in fear and awe. And throughout the rest of Revelation, we will witness the breathtaking power and glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, triumphing over this evil worldly system and finally putting an end to Satan, sin, and death. Well, we saw Jesus first revealed in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there was an order. God gave the information to Jesus, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John the apostle, who's giving it to the churches. Then we talked about verse 3, the blessings. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear and heed the words of this prophecy. Today, we're going to focus on Jesus Christ. Obviously, we did at the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But do you realize that 45% of the words in Revelation 1 are all about Jesus? Jesus is mentioned or described in 17 of the 20 verses here in this chapter, which is 85% of this chapter. Why? Because the book's all about Jesus. Because our hope is in Jesus Christ. Because the future is all about Jesus Christ. Because he wants us to know who he is and see him in all of his glory. Many people saw Jesus as the suffering Messiah, and they committed their lives to him. But now he's coming as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we see him in this book in all of his glory. We see a little bit in chapter 5 that he's the lamb who was slain. But other than that, it's who Christ is now. And this is what gives us the hope of the future. So it's so wonderful to have this description of Jesus Christ coming from John the Apostle, who knew him so well as his teacher, as his beloved Messiah on earth, and he's the one that gets to tell us about what he sees when he gets this vision of Jesus in heaven. He starts out in verse 4 by saying, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, 
The key here is that John is writing to these seven churches and he's sending them this letter in its entirety so that they will know what to expect about the future. And then he says as his greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ. So who does that tell us we're looking at right here? The Trinity. Specifically, God the Father is related to as who is, who was, and who is to come. And then this Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits who are before his throne. If you go back and look at Isaiah 11 too, we see there what it tells us about the Spirit of God. It says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, meaning on Jesus, the Spirit of wisdom understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we see seven aspects to the Holy Spirit in that verse, which is what's being described right here. And then it turns to Jesus in verse five. After we've talked about God, the Father and the Holy Spirit, it says, and from Jesus, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, Jesus Christ, the word Christ is Messiah. That means that Jesus being recognized as our savior of our sins. So when this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's not just a man. He's not just a good person or a rabbi or teacher. He is our Messiah. It goes on to describe him as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. Let's just talk about those three for a minute. The faithful witness. What does that mean that he's the faithful witness? Well, if we look at John 18, 34, that passage says, that Pilate said to Jesus, so you are king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Anyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus is a faithful witness of the truth. And even more so, we're told in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is the witness, the radiance of God, the father. He's the exact representation. It's like looking in a mirror. When Jesus looks in a mirror, he sees God, the father, because he and the father are one. That's what a faithful witness is. And he would say that whatever he was saying was from the Father. It wasn't just from himself. And so what we saw or heard through Scripture and what they saw and heard when he was on earth was a faithful representation of God. This proves that Jesus is God because he's mentioned here with the Trinity and he's the faithful witness. It says he's the firstborn from the dead. We could read lots of passages about that, like Colossians 1. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, it starts in verse 20 by saying, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. But since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. That gives us hope. He's not only the first fruits of the dead, but by him being the first fruits of the dead, the first one to die and then be raised from the dead by God the Father so that he can live eternally and conquer death. He opens that door for us so we too can conquer death. And then he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He wasn't the ruler when he was here on earth. He died for our sins. He was never crowned a king, but he is now. And he said in Matthew 28, 18, 
Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, we haven't seen him reign on earth yet. It's been 2,000 years. We're waiting for that to happen. But he already sees himself, and God already sees him as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do we see him as the faithful witness, the one who died for our sins, the one who rose from the dead, and the one who's coming to reign on earth? It's so awesome to see him in this power and this glory because he was the suffering servant when he was on earth. So we get to see him in his victory, in his glory. And yet he is the one, as we go into a little further into that scripture, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So we're reminded of how he poured out his entire life for us. And again, there's that love that John is so familiar with, that we're so familiar with. Yes, you're referring to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God loves us so much that he gave Jesus, who loves us too, and lives to make intercession for us now. He loves us, and he released us from our sins by his blood. You can read Romans 3.21 to 26. That's a very important passage. I'm going to read part of it for you now. It says in verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. That's so important is that we're justified as if we'd never sinned before God by Christ's redemption, his paying the price through his blood on the cross. That's what he has done for us. That's why we can look forward to the hope of the future. Now, looking at Revelation 1, 6, it goes on to describe Jesus by saying, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. We are told in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So he says right there that we're priests. And he tells us in Revelation 20, we're getting a little bit of our, ahead of ourselves here, but he tells us in verse six, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of his Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I mean, priests are pretty special people in God's eyes. We are priests. We're going to reign with Christ. It's just amazing that in these first few verses, we are given so much. We are given the assurance of our resurrection and of our salvation, and then this inheritance to be priests, and all of this to the glory of God and to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's just awesome, just those couple of verses. I know, and it says that at the end of verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That means we get to be with him, and he's got the power and the glory. Verse 7 then looks at the future when it says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him? Even so, amen. Well, wait a minute, that's kind of strange. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye is going to see him, even those who pierced him? Who pierced him? The Romans pierced him on the cross. We know that Jesus, when he comes again, according to Matthew 24, it says it's going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days, when the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the skies, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It says that same thing in Matthew 24. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. 
So why do they mourn? They mourn because when Jesus returns, most of the world at that time that's alive will have turned away from Jesus. They will recognize him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, but they will not have committed their lives to him. Therefore, they're going to be relegated to eternal hell. Not everybody, but a lot of the world will be. I think it's important to recognize as we read that, that all the tribes of the earth are included. We talked about like the Romans actually pierced him, the Romans actually crucified him. So that's a representation of the Gentiles. But the Jews, the Jewish leaders were the ones that wanted him put to death in the first place. Therefore, it's all of us that were responsible. We're all represented. Each and every one of us could be held responsible for the death of Jesus, but he gives us that grace that we just read about in the previous couple of verses. So much love and so much grace that you don't have to be among those who mourn. Everyone will recognize him, some will mourn him, and some will have that glorious inheritance that he has given us. But praise the Lord, we come to verse 8, which goes back to God the Father when it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the dominant one, the El Shaddai is what it's saying here, ruler over all things. So we're reminded that it's God who's giving John this information through Jesus and through the angels. So God the Father is depicted, the Holy Spirit is depicted, and Jesus Christ is. Now as we turn to Revelation 1.9, we're going to get some more detail. It says, I, John, your brother and faithful partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Christ Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John further describes himself here as a fellow partaker in the tribulations. He suffered for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he persevered. He had that steadfastness, that endurance abiding under and with Christ that kept him faithful. That will keep us faithful if we look at John as a witness to Jesus Christ and see how he endured, as did the other apostles, and we can endure too. Here he's on the Isle of Patmos. It's a small little island just west of Asia Minor. It's actually so small that once the winter months come, no ships come to that island. And John was relegated to that. It's slightly off the coast of Ephesus. And John was the pastor at the church of Ephesus. So was Timothy previous to that. But John was the pastor there. That's why he was probably exiled to the closest place. So that's where he is. It says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? He was controlled by God, by his spirit. His spirit of God was speaking to his spirit on the Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the Lord's day. That was the day he was resurrected, which is why it's called the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a voice like the sound of a trumpet. As we study Revelation, there's a lot of similes. There's a lot of examples and a lot of word pictures that we see here. Whenever we see like or as, it's equating what John's seeing to something else. Now, keep in mind, this is 95 AD. Everything John explains or tells us about are things that he saw with his eyes. But he's not familiar with a lot of these things, so he has to describe them as he sees them with a first century mindset. So he says he sees a voice like a trumpet, the sound of a trumpet. What's a trumpet used for? It's called to break camp. It's called to battle. It's called to worship. It's called to attention. And the voice said in verse 11, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll talk about all of those churches starting next week. So then as we 
turn to verse 12, he turns to see the voice of the one who is speaking to him. And when he does that, he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, how are we supposed to know what seven golden lampstands mean? As we often see in the book of Revelation, we get an answer later on. We will see in chapter 12 how Satan is described really strangely. And yet that is explained in chapter 17. So we see later what it means. In this case, we don't have to wait that long. First of all, when John turned and he saw the voice speaking with him, I just can imagine what it would be like when we see this picture that we're going to see in a minute. First thing he saw were seven golden lampstands. According to verse 20, it says the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. That's the seven churches that we just mentioned that he's writing to. So the first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands, the churches. Verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstand, one like a son of man. Son of man was the most popular name that Jesus ever used for himself and that the gospel writers ever used to refer to Jesus was son of man. Now it does say one like a son of man, but remember with the description, we know it is Jesus. Why is Jesus standing in the middle of the lampstands, in the middle of the churches? Because Jesus is the pastor of the churches. Jesus is the God of the churches. Jesus is the foundation of our churches. So it makes sense that Jesus is standing right there in these churches. Now, I'm just going to give you a little tidbit for next week. But there's a lot more than seven churches in the face of the earth at this point when John's writing this. So Jesus is speaking to seven different types of churches that really kind of represent all churches in one way or another. So basically what we're seeing here is Jesus is the founder of the churches. He's the pastor. He's the main shepherd for each of the churches. We can depend on him. The church is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the next thing we get is a picture of this one who is like the Son of Man. So it should be a a human-like figure. And as we see how it's dressed, it is like a man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Now, is there any significance to how he's dressed? Well, a very important person wore a long robe, but the most important one was the high priest. And we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. So according to Exodus 29, 5, the high priest had a long robe, and that's probably what we're referring to here. And girded across the breastplate of the high priest, was the high priest's breastplate. You might call it a golden girdle here, but it was a golden plate with the 12 tribes of Israel represented by 12 large stones so that the 12 tribes of Israel were always on the heart of the high priest. So you can get the idea here that Jesus as the high priest. He has this golden girdle, which is symbolic of the high priest's breastplate. As we look at verse 14, we're told that his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. Have we ever seen anybody described like that? If you look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. So Jesus is described here as God the Father is described when he is the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. So what a description. It goes on to say his eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, it's a simile. It's like a flame of fire, but wow, what must be flashing out of these eyes that the eyes look like that to him. And his feet were like 
burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. So again, this is bright and glowing. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Guess I think of a waterfall or something. That's interesting that you would hear somebody describe a voice like that. We see a description like that in Ezekiel 43 too, when it says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Now that's talking about the millennial kingdom temple and what it's going to be like. But there it describes his voice as the sound of many waters. Before that, though, in this passage that you read, with his eyes as a flame of fire and his feet as burnished bronze, that's talking about terror. You're talking about wrath when we see an example of that. Crushing someone's enemies with the burnished bronze feet. So Jesus, when we see him in his glory here, We're also seeing him in his wrath and how he's going to conquer sin and crush those people who have walked in their sin and not turned to him. Verse 16 is described as having in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, what are the seven stars? Again, in verse 20, we see that we're told what that means. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands we already told you are the seven churches. So we have seven angels that Jesus is technically holding in his hand that he's going to use to talk to the churches and tell them what his message is to them because he is the leader of the church and he's the one who sees what's going on in the churches. He's the one who wants to give us direction in our churches. Now, when we see Jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand, that's a position of honor. Having the right hand or sitting at the right hand of God is a place of honor that we see in Isaiah 41. That passage says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen thee Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a position of power. And when he tells John not to be afraid, what does he do? He places his right hand on John. Great example of God's power and of God saying, don't be afraid. We have nothing to fear when we have Jesus as our Savior. Out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Well, we know about that from Hebrews 4.12, which tells us the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So this sword, is it a real sword? Well, it could be, but it also could be the word of God that sees everything into our lives and our spirits and our souls. And we see that when Jesus comes in Revelation 19 and when Jesus defeats the armies, he does it with the sword that comes out of his mouth. All of these descriptions that we're seeing of Jesus here in chapter one, we will see throughout the book of Revelation as he displays his power and his glory throughout this entire book. When it tells us his face was like the sun shining in his strength, I think of the transfiguration in Matthew 17 too. When Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his transformed body before he was ever transfigured. What does it mean when Jesus says, I'm the first and the last? Well, Isaiah 46, 6 tells us that answer. 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. There's never been anybody that was before God. There'll never be anyone after God. As a matter of fact, we're reminded in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, God says, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. We see his glory in the book of Revelation. We're going to see some earthly powers. We're going to see satanic powers. But ultimately, we see the power and glory of Jesus Christ working in conjunction with the Trinity in God's plans for these future days. Verse 17 of Revelation 1, John said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, later in Revelation 19, we're going to see John fall at the feet of an angel. And the angel is going to say, Don't worship me, worship Jesus. Well, here we see he's falling at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus isn't saying, Don't worship me. Because Jesus is the one who we worship. He is our Lord. And he is depicted here as the risen Lord, the Savior, as well as the mighty coming King. So Jesus says to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead. and Behold, I am alive forevermore. Here we see another description of what Jesus has already done. He died for our sins but he's alive right now. And remember in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, we're told that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So at some point, people are going to see this and they're going to recognize that Jesus is our faithful King. That doesn't mean they're going to have an opportunity to be saved if they haven't accepted Christ But this means that everybody will eventually recognize as Jesus is Christ. As we're looking at 18, that he describes himself as the living one who was dead and was alive now forevermore and has the keys of death and Hades. We know that that's something that we have always feared. And now we have this one who says, do not be afraid, even though he has all this power and authority. Don't be afraid. He's holding the keys. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because so many people today are afraid. They're afraid of what's going on. Well, what we're afraid of right now is nothing compared to the fear of death. What if we die and we don't go to be with Jesus? Jesus has conquered death. He has the keys to death in Hades. We just need to turn to him and then that'll be released and we won't go there. In verse 19, we see a layout of the entire book of Revelation. Because here John is told, write therefore the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. So he's saying, write the things which you have seen. Well, he's just seen chapter one. And the things which are, well, chapters two and three are the current churches at that time that this book is being written to. And then write the things that shall take place after these things. That's chapter four through chapter 22 of Revelation. So it's very clear the things that were in the past, chapter one, the things that are, chapters two and three, and the future. And how do we know their future? Because a lot of people will tell you the book of Revelation, either we're living through it now or it's happened in the past. There is no historical proof that the things we see in Revelation have ever happened. Some of the things, like war and famine, certainly have, but the majority of what we see in Revelation haven't happened. So we know they are yet future. I hope today you have gotten a a good glimpse of who Jesus Christ is. Now, will you surrender your life to him? Because this is the time before it's too late. You see, Jesus is the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Will you commit your life to him? 
Say, God, I'm a sinner. I need redemption. Come into my life and I will follow you. It's just a simple heartfelt prayer like that. If you will do that, you'll be ready for these days that are coming upon us. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.